0: I'm a professor of psychiatry and neurobehavioral
1: sciences at the University of Virginia, and I've been in uh, university medical schools of teaching psychiatry for the past uh, 45 years or so. I was raised in a scientific household um, where the material world was all there is for our family. We never talked about anything spiritual or religious. Uh, it's not that we were anti-religious. We just, it just never came up. So I went through college and medical school, thinking in terms of purely material world and nothing else. And I expected to be a materialist science just like my father was. And then just after I graduated from medical school, I was starting my internship on psychiatry. And in the first couple of months, I was evaluating a patient in the emergency room who had overdosed. And when I went to see her, she was totally unconscious. So I couldn't really talk with her, but her roommate was waiting for me down the hall, about 50 yards down the hall in another room. And I went to talk to her to find out what was going on with the patient. I talked to her for 20 or 30 minutes and then sent her home and went back to check on the patient and she was still unconscious. I ascertained that she was going to be admitted to the intensive care unit overnight because she had an irregular heartbeat and went back to see her in the morning. When I came back the next day, uh, she was awake, but very, very drowsy, barely awake at all. I had to uh, call her name and, and jostle her a little to get her open an eye. And I said, I'm Dr. Grayson. And she said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. And that kind of startled me because as far as I could tell, she was out cold the night before. Um, so I, I said to her, i oh, um, I'm surprised because I thought you were unconscious when I saw you last night. And she said, well, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate, Susan, down the hall. And that kind of threw me because I I couldn't understand how that could be. Uh, She certainly couldn't have overheard us and not seen us. Um, So I said, do you mean the nurses told you that I talked to Susan last night? And then she opened her eyes, both eyes, for the first time and looked at me and said, no, I saw you. And then she proceeded to tell me about the conversation I had with her roommate, all the details, making no mistakes, even to what we were wearing, including a stain on my tie that no one else had seen. And that just totally threw me. The only way I could imagine this happening is if she had left her body and come down to the other room, and that's clearly not possible. As far as I could tell, I was my body. I couldn't imagine what it meant to leave your body but I didn't have time to think about it. I was there to do a job to to help her with her suicidal thoughts. I couldn't deal with my confusion. So I kind of pushed it out of my mind for, for several years. And a few years later, I met Raymond Moody who wrote a book called life after life in 1975 that gave us the name near death experiences uh, for these phenomena and reading his book and talking with him. I realized this was kind of what my patient had described to me years earlier. And it wasn't just, a one-time thing. It was something that was fairly common. And being a scientist, this piqued my curiosity. How can we not investigate this? It's something we can't explain, and yet it's there. It happens. So I'm now 50 years later still trying to understand what this is and how it happens.
0: And I'm sure with this kind of phenomena with and your background in in material science, it was a big shock to experience what you were experiencing and to try to explain it. Yeah,
1: I, I could not explained it, but I couldn't accept that there was a non-physical part of us. So I, I figured it must be some trick she was playing. I don't know how she did it. And then over the years, um, I met more and more people who described these near-death experiences um, and who had more of a full-fledged experience. I didn't have time to really ask her about the different aspects of a near-death experience. I didn't know to ask at that time. All I knew was that she claimed to have left her body and seen things elsewhere. But other people I talked to mentioned things like leaving their bodies, going through a tunnel, going to another realm of light with, uh, pervaded with love and seeing deceased loved ones, reviewing their lives and so forth. And there were enough consistencies in their reports from one person to another that I started to study, well, how can this be, what's causing this? A materialistic scientist myself, I couldn't accept it at first. And it wasn't until I was overwhelmed by the amount of the data that I started taking it seriously. And I think most scientists are not yet aware of all the data there are. You know, when we first started doing this research um, back in the early 1980s, very few doctors, if any, had heard about these things. And when we would talk about it at medical conferences, there would be a polite silence in the room. And now when we talk about it, there are usually several doctors in the audience who will stand up and tell about their near-death experiences. So everybody knows about it now, and there's still a lot of controversy about what causes it. And still a lot of people who won't accept that there's anything non-material about this. But I think there are enough questions now that we need to look at all different possibilities.
0: Yes, I would agree, absolutely. And it's a definition of of science itself to really take into account all different possibilities and where the evidence falls in terms of which is more the parsimonious explanation. I know there are a lot of people that will deny there's anything physical happening and they usually bring up things such as, especially with researchers, confirmation bias and things like that, which, you know, confirmation bias is, yeah, um, which is why I really admire the way you do things because you look at things from both sides every time, a number of studies you've done on looking at the material possibilities as well as on material possibilities. And I think it's a reasonable point the Skeptics bring up with this kind of research that um, there will be biases that we face even as researchers because... Um, you know, having biases is a very human thing, of course. That is.
1: Um, you know, m- my bias, if I had one, was towards a materialistic explanation. That's the way I was raised, and that's the way I was trained. And it was only when I kept pursuing one materialistic explanation after another and finding the data contradict them all. that I thought, started thinking more and more in terms of some type of non-materialistic explanation, which is still hard for me to get my head around.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the whole foundation of science in the West is based around materialistic frameworks, which has been incredibly successful over the yes. past several hundred years. So, anything like this will be a will be a whack to the worldview. Um, so, there are many materialistic explanations to near death experiences, which seem reasonable, perfectly sure. reasonable on the on the surface of things. Um, what kind of explanation have you seen that has been used to fit this this phenomena?
1: Well, the most obvious um, explanation is that. As you're dying or approaching death, you're getting less oxygen to the brain. Your brain doesn't function as well. And this is appealing because no matter how you come close to death, one of the final common steps is losing oxygen to the brain. But we know from many decades of clinical work and research what happens when you have lack of oxygen to the brain. And it's nothing like the calm, pleasant, consistent near-death experience. People become belligerent, agitated, frightened, combative, uh, nothing like the calm, uh, peaceful near-death experience. In addition, there have been several studies now done in the US and the UK and in Europe that have documented levels of oxygen during people's approaches to to death. And they find that people who have near-death experiences or at least people who report near-death experiences have actually higher oxygen levels in their brain than people who don't report NDEs. Now that may suggest that you need to have a well oxygenated brain to have a near-death experience, or it may just suggest you need good oxygen to the brain in order to remember having had a near-death experience. However, there are certain patterns of after effects from near-death experiences. People typically become much more spiritual, much more materialistic, much more concerned about personal relationships rather than physical objects, money, prestige, power, fame. They become more altruistic. And we see these things in people who report having near-death experiences. We do not see them in people who don't report having near-death experiences when they come close to death. So that leads us to suspect that they didn't actually have a near-death experience if they didn't report the typical after-effects.
0: Yes. And uh, during your work, you developed um, a certain scale, didn't you, to... um... To determine the level of a need experience which is of course now known as the Grayson scale um, did you find that you had a lot of difficulty getting your own scale and the research itself into the mainstream because I've read in, in your book after that you did have some you did face some issues from um, professors or universities in getting your research done
1: Well I've had some difficulty throughout the years of getting um, this work accepted by the mainstream uh, but um, that scale that I developed was published in one of the major um, standard psychiatric journals. And most of my work has been published in mainstream medical and psychiatric journals. So I have not had any trouble there. I found that even if it's a very controversial topic, if the research is well done, then it will get published in the best journals.
0: So, what would you say to those um, who who have said that the near-death experience science is all subjective and therefore isn't really of any evidential value because no objective um, research has been done on the phenomena, which I've heard from many different places? Well, there has been,
1: in fact, a lot of objective research done with near-death experiences. Obviously, you can't do experiments where you randomly assign people to have a near-death experience or not, and you can't pee people blind as whether they've had a near-death experience or not. They know when they've had it. Um, So you can't do a controlled experiment with NDEs, near-death experiences, but there are lots of areas of science where you can't control the variables and you can't do a controlled experiment. You can't control the stars when you're studying astronomy. You can't control fossils when you're studying paleontology. But these are accepted as science. It's the same way with the study of consciousness or near-death experiences. We can't control all the variables. But that doesn't mean we can't do rigorous scientific research.
0: Yes, indeed. One very common criticism on near-death experience research is that um, well, people state that the evidence that's provided is anecdotal and therefore is not of um, very strong evidential value. What would you say to those who, who say that because research is anecdotal in nature that it's not valuable?
1: Well, I, I would say look at the history of science everything we know scientifically started with anecdotes, which just means observations of what's out there. And from collections of anecdotes, you find patterns that you can then do studies on. And we're at that stage now where we're collecting anecdotes and finding the the patterns in these anecdotes for near-death experiences, and then designing experiments to test those, those hypotheses based on the patterns. Even though a lot of the stories we hear are quote anecdotes, They are often corroborated by independent witnesses. For example, we have many cases of people who claim to leave their bodies and see things, sometimes very unexpected things they couldn't have guessed from an out-of-body perspective when they were demonstrably unconscious. And yet when we talk to other people who are around, doctors and nurses in the operating room, for example, they validate that these descriptions the patients gave were absolutely accurate. And that takes it beyond the range of just being in unconfirmed
0: anecdote yes I would agree and certainly the works of um, like the book The Self Does Not Die by Titus Rivers Annie Durbin and um, Rudolf Smith display many cases of third party uh, what's called veridical perception as you know but um, and a lot of them seem to take place at a point when the brain is not functioning where it, sh- it shouldn't be functioning enough to produce consciousness although whenever I bring up this point to sceptical people I know they say well this has, has never actually happened. Nobody's ever actually had veridical perception while we knew the brain wasn't working. So uh, do you know of any documented, verified cases of this actually taking place during this time?
1: Uh, there actually was one case like that. It was the case of Pam Reynolds, who had the blood completely drained from her body um, to correct an aneurysm. That's a, a blood vessel ballooning in her brain deep in the base of her brain. And she needed her body to be cooled down to 60 degrees Fahrenheit for about an hour so they could do this operation. And they had to drain all the blood out of her body so the aneurysm wouldn't burst. And during that time, she had no brain waves. There was no metabolism going on in her brain because she didn't have any blood or oxygen going to her brain. She had molded speakers in her ears, blasting loud signs and they measured the brain waves that until there was no response at all to these loud sounds sent being blasted at her. So clearly she had no brain function during that time, yet she had what she says was the most vivid experience of her life, in which she saw things in the operating room, saw deceased loved ones and so forth. Now, we don't usually have measurements of brain waves like we did in that case, because when you're having a heart attack or some other near-death event, you don't have the EEG who hookups To your brain going on and it takes quite a while to hook those up so no one's going to do that during a near-death crisis however
0: yes we don't know exactly what the brain's doing at that time
1: but we do know what happens physiologically to the brain during a cardiac arrest and in a matter of four or five seconds the brain waves start to shut down within 20 seconds at the most there is total flattening of the brain waves no measurable brain activity and yet people report vivid near death experiences under those conditions These are not experiments. These are clinical observations we're talking about. You can't repeat this event. And in fact, it is not uncorroborated. The surgeon who performed the surgery on Pam Reynolds said, frankly, he has no explanation for how that could possibly be. There's no way she could materially understand these things that happened to her, and yet she did. Actually, there has been another study of this same type of procedure it's called hypothermic circulatory arrest where all the blood is drained and your body is cooled down. Um, a neurophysiologist, uh, 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 Dr. Mario Beauregard, who was then at the Montreal Psychiatric Institute collected several of these cases and he found three other cases like Pam Reynolds who reported near-death experiences during this procedure. So Herzl is not the only one.
0: Right. And I'm sure you know of the um, the skeptic, Dr. Gerald Verley, the anesthesiologist. Oh yes. Uh, yes, he has extensively looked at the Pam Reynolds case and has come up with several um, different explanations for various parts, um, saying, for instance, that the vertical perception didn't take place while her brain was actually, you know, not functioning while it was under burst suppression. Um, and there have, of course, been other other people who have brought this case up, as it's a very popular popular case for this kind of subject, and they've um, contended that. The perceptions that she took, that she that she saw, were possible in physical terms. So I'm just wondering, um, looking at Dr. Verley's arguments and those of others, such as um, Keith Augustine, and I'm sure Susan Blackmore's had a part mm-hmm. in it. Um, I'm not sure if that's the case, but um, have there been any reasonable physical explanations for this case?
1: Uh, there is not. Um, I, I'm familiar with Dr. Worley's uh, arguments. I've I published when I edited the Journal of New Death Studies. I published a paper by him with these arguments and with both other people arguing against him. Um, he makes a lot of arguments, but is not aware of all the facts of the case. He argues, for example, that the headphones that were supposed to be blocking out her sa- her hearing was not adequate because he tried headphones on and he could still hear. But the point is not that they were blocking out sounds, but they were uh, projecting into her brain sounds that they were measuring the brain's response to. And it was when they stopped, having any brain response at all to these sounds that were being projected into her brain, that they decided she was unconscious. So it's not a matter of blocking out brain brainwaves, brain, uh, sounds, it was a matter of, of no longer responding to the sounds that were there. There are questions about when during the procedure uh, she described all these things, but she described it as a continuous process of consciousness, even while she was her brain was not functioning throughout the whole procedure. She described things that she could not have guessed that she had not been told about the body and about the procedure, including a vivid description of the very unusual type of bone saw used to cut into her skull. And these were things that happened while she was totally unconscious. But I've got lots of other examples as well of people who were in deep anesthesia, who saw and reported accurately very surprising things that the surgeons involved later corroborated. And I, I'll say again that even though Dr. Worley, who did not uh, know some of the facts about the case, is very sceptical of it, the doctors who were actually involved in that case are not at all.
0: Um, so um, one of the things that Dr. Worley was suggesting, that um, something that took place around the time of the Pam Reynolds case, was, um, for instance, Dr. Uh, oh, what was his name, the head surgeon? Dr. Spetzler. No, Dr. Spetzler, that's right. Um, he was saying that around that time, a lot of um, doctors were being sued for malpractice or for um, causing issues to their clients in some way. So something that Dr. Early mentioned may be the case. I don't know how true this is or how possible this is even, that um, Dr. Spetzler may have c- kind of created that that narrative as a way of avoiding the lawsuit, so to speak. If You, you know what I mean? Um, I'll have to look back to see exactly what he said, but this this is the kind of another explanation that he put forward.
1: Well, I think the ultimate defense for any of these materialists who don't want to accept what the reality was going on is simply to say it wasn't true. It didn't happen. You're making it up for various reasons and there's no way to defend against that. Anybody can make up anything. um, And, you know, the only thing you can do is look at the source. Is this a reliable source or not? Is confirmed by many, many other people throughout the world. In these cases, it is. I've got lots of other examples of people who, during surgical procedures, when they were demonstrably unconscious, perceived many things that were unexpected and and corroborated by the surgeons involved. It's not just one uh, case of of someone who was being sued.
0: Right. So how many cases do we have um, in the literature at the moment of veridical perception that took place in a time when we knew the brain should not have been functioning to allow consciousness, like um, like in cardiac arrest where the brain's offline within a few like half a minute or so? How many cases of those do we have?
1: Um, I have a few thousand in my collection. Mm. Um, Jeffrey Long, a radiation oncologist oh, yeah. in Louisiana, has several thousand in his collection. Mm. Uh, I couldn't tell you how many worldwide. Because uh, there's so many different researchers now doing this type of, of research
0: and sorry and this um, this is cases um where during cardiac arrest where we know the brain shouldn't have been working right and th- this is cases during cardiac arrest where the brain should not have been working at the time yes yes yeah. and, um, which would be very strong evidence that the brain does not produce consciousness you'd have thought I think so hmm. and I mean add to the simple numbers of the cases that have been recorded and those that have been estimated I mean even if they're not reported, it's estimated something 20% of the population, which would be up to a billion people worldwide. I think that's right. At the most, yes. At the most, yes. Um, I'd like to run another common argument by by the sceptics, which is that um, even though the brain is being registered to be flat in some of these instances on the EEG, that could suggest that... um, that there although there is no registered activity there is still activity going on within the brain which could account for these experiences some res- residual activity what, what do you think of that kind of sure ex- explanation right well the standard
1: EEG measures sort of the surface uh, electrical activity It's the cortex the complicated part of the brain that is responsible for our thinking our thoughts our emotions um, and when we say that the EEG is flat that means that cortex of the brain, the new part of the brain is only a few million years old, is silent. That does not mean there's no activity going on somewhere very deep in the brain. The parts of the brain that control our breathing, that keep us alive when we're unconscious, that still probably has some electrical activity going on. But the point is not whether there's any activity going on in the brain. The question is, is there activity of the type that can be responsible for consciousness? And it's very clear what is needed for consciousness. And it is active activity in the cerebral cortex, not only active activity, but coordinated activity across different parts of the cortex. And that is clearly not going on with flat EEGs.
0: Yeah. So a flat EEG basically means that we know there isn't enough brain activity to correlate with conscious experience. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, Another area I think that it's quite recent that's, that's very interesting is, is the work on psychedelics and uh, its relationship to uh, high states of consciousness. And it's interesting to find that um, in some of the studies more recently that uh, I think it's worked with ketamine has shown that, in fact, these drugs cause a reduction in brain activity. And that seems to...
1: That's fascinating work because we always assume that these psychedelic drugs produced visions by stimulating the brain to hallucinate. And the fact that it actually works by basically shutting the brain down, producing less activity in the brain to produce this tremendous expansion in consciousness is counterintuitive if you believe that consciousness comes solely from the brain. So I think this is one of several different lines of evidence now showing that consciousness, the mind, our ability to think is not solely dependent
0: the brain and um a popular theory that seems to be going around now which i agree with is that um, the brain kind of acts more as a receiver and filter of consciousness yes now, i haven't seen any evidence for brain creating consciousness that can't be used for filtering exactly um so i mean for instance you know if you bang your head really hard uh, you damage consciousness certainly you damage the brain you, you affect consciousness but if you hit a radio very hard, you distort the sound that comes out. And um, that's an analogy that's often used, but it's often met with a lot of, I suppose, criticism with, with mainstream paradigms, mainstream science. Um, what do you think about the, the filter theory and the way it's met?
1: Well, the idea that the brain is a filter or a receiver for consciousness should not be all that surprising because all our physical senses filter out sensory input. For example, your eyes not only bring in light so you can see, but also filter out light that is not immediately relevant to your physical survival. Similarly, our ears only let in certain sound waves, certain frequencies that are important to us. We know that dogs and cats hear lots of sounds we don't hear because they're not important to our survival. So our sensory organs are designed not only to let us perceive the outside world, but to filter out those parts of the outside world that are not relevant or not essential for our physical survival. When people talk about their consciousness in a near-death experience, or for that matter, in a psychedelic drug trip, they often report experiences of a mystical nature that aren't immediately relevant to physical survival in this earth. So it makes sense if the brain's purpose is to help us function on the earth plane, in the material world, that it would filter out those irrelevant thoughts and perceptions So in our normal everyday life, it only lets in those thoughts and perceptions that are relevant to survival, how to find food, how to find shelter, how to find a mate, and not about how to communicate with deceased loved ones. That's totally irrelevant to functioning in the physical world. But when the brain is shut down, as in a near-death experience, or with some psychedelic drugs, apparently... This other consciousness is allowed to come through. It's not being filtered anymore by the brain.
0: Yes. And um, I think one of the main arguments is that we don't have a mechanism for how this would work. So therefore, we, we can't really uh, study it, I suppose, and, and use it further. But I argue that instead of trying to study this with main scientific ideas, we need to expand the science itself to include this. So how do we expand science? Uh, in such a way that allows us to study this phenomena more effectively?
1: That's a, a great question, Darren. Uh, and a lot of the problem is because we don't have a language for this. When you ask a near-death experiencer what what happened to them, um, they often start by saying, well, there's, there are no words to describe it. I can't put it into words for you. And then we say, you know, great, that's fascinating. Tell me all about it, you know. So we force them to distort the experience by putting it into words. And we know they're talking in metaphors, they can't describe it realistically. So for example, when I talk about the brain as a filter, that's a metaphor. I I don't know what's really going on there, but somehow the brain is functioning to let in certain things and not let in other things. So we use the filter as as a metaphor for that. Similarly, all the things that people talk about In a near-death experience, tunnels and lights and other beings, they're using words that we can understand. They may not be accurate descriptions of what they actually experienced. In fact, many people will tell you, they will say, you know, I saw God, and they'll quickly say, I don't mean the type of God we were taught about in church, but I don't know what else to call it other than God. It was this all-loving, all-powerful being that communicated unconditional love to me, so I don't know what to, what to call it, so I'll just call it God for the sake of communication with you. And it's that way with everything they talk about in the near-death experience, where there's a tunnel or the brilliant lights or the new colors they've never seen before, they're using metaphors that we can understand. And that makes it very hard to do research because everyone uses the metaphors they are personally familiar with. You won't hear a Hindu using the same metaphors as a Christian, for example.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, another argument that came up, I believe, from Dr. Joel Verley, was um, if if people, when they come out of their body, they report seeing things, hearing things, etc., um, surely in order to hear things, see things, we need some kind of physical apparatus to do it, because it, after all, you know, light and sound are physical um, manifestations of, of energy, I suppose you'd say, which are received by our physical sense organs. So how can it be then that when we're out of body without sight without eyes without ears without noses whatever um, how can it be that we can still gather sensory information as we understand it in physical i mean people come out the body they say i saw a light for instance well how can somebody see a light without you know what i mean without light going in through their eyes hitting their retinas and being and whatever so how can we have similar experiences without the physical apparatus
1: that's a great question and I don't think we have an answer for that. Um, but you're putting the question in materialistic terms, and that may not be where the answer has to has to come from. Um, you know, these people will say, I heard this. But they will also say, it wasn't like hearing through my ears. I just became aware of it. And I don't know how to tell you about it other than say, I heard this, or this was told to me. Well, there wasn't a mouth there speaking to me. I just became aware of it. So I'm saying I was told this. I don't know how it happened. The same thing with vision. They will say, you know, I saw colors that I can't describe to you because I never saw them before on Earth. Are those light particles? We don't know.
0: Yes. Um, It's commonly um, reported in out-of-body experiences as well that um, visual perceptions and audio perceptions are uh, are done through kind of a a non-physical version uh, of Uh, physical senses which may i suppose be the case as well
1: that's right that's right i don't know the answer to that Um, but it's not the only example where people claim to see things and their perceptions are corroborated when they haven't been able to use their eyes to do this for example people who do quote remote vision who are able to sit in one office and describe what's going on miles away and they're often very accurate with this and they they clearly didn't put their eyes miles away to see these things. And yet they described them in visual terms as if they were there seeing them. How do they do this? I don't know.
0: And there certainly are cases that can be um, concluded as being, you know, faulty memory, for instance.
1: There does seem to be that.
0: Yeah. So what do you say to those who say that um, all these people are imagining things? You know, they they heard things while they were awake or whatever, and their brain created a narrative to fit what they what they heard.
1: Well, you could say it's imaginary if it wasn't corroborated. But they're all true. What makes a statement scientific or not is whether it is potentially disprovable. And when we say things like faulty memory or lying about it, that's not disprovable. You can never prove that someone did not lie about something. So you're not giving a scientific explanation there. You're giving a philosophical argument against something. But it's not by any means a testable scientific statement.
0: Hmm. Many have said that science is effectively the only honest way to approach learning about life and, and the universe and everything, um, and things like philosophy are kind of second, you know, the science's little brother, so to speak. What, what do you think about that kind, of, um, that kind of claim?
1: I think science is the best way we have of communicating with each other in a logical, coherent way. I think other areas like philosophy and religion give answers, but they're more personal, individual answers. And it's hard for me to corroborate what you are thinking or believing philosophically. What we can agree to test whether our perceptions are the same, whether our physical perceptions are the same. So I put my faith in the scientific investigation of things in order to give us the answers that we can talk about between people. I think we may need to expand what we think of as science right now. And that's certainly happened over the centuries. And I don't know whether the science that we have today in 2021 is adequate to explain all these phenomena. But we're constantly finding new tools, new ways of using scientific methods to explore these phenomena.
0: Yes, I absolutely agree. And, um, you know, there's no doubt that that science, modern science, has been incredibly useful. I mean, thanks to material science, we've got things like um, medical science. You know, we know how to repair ourselves. We we know what food is necessary and why we need it to survive. But when it comes to, I suppose, things like consciousness, it is very much bound to, to physical reality.
1: Well, what we call science now was developed to study the physical world. So that's what it's very good at. But it can be used to study the physical world indirectly. For example, we can produce subatomic particles that are so small and so short lived they can't be perceived directly. But if we shoot them through a tunnel chamber, a tunnel chamber, which is um, filled with a liquid like liquid oxygen or liquid hydrogen, and watch the bubble trails that this particle makes through the liquid, we can infer things about the particle size and shape and charge. So we can't see the particle itself So you can say, oh, it's just imaginary. And yet it has physical effects that we can verify. And it's the same way with consciousness. We can't perceive it directly, but we can perceive its effects on the body. And those are reliable over people.
0: Hmm. So coming on to, I suppose, the major argument that's used to suggest that the brain creates consciousness is that, well, um, we know that when we damage the, the brain, of course, um, we damage consciousness. When we change the brain in any way, consciousness or the mind is, is changed. So that would show um, evidence for emergence. A consciousness is produced by the brain.
1: Well, you're confusing a few different things here. One is the evidence that affecting the brain will affect our consciousness. And there's no doubt that in everyday life, that's the that's case. the case. When you get intoxicated, you don't think as clearly as you usually do. When you have a brain tumor or get hit on the head, that affects your thinking. There's no question that that's true in everyday life. In everyday life, the brain and the mind seem to work together to produce our consciousness. But in extreme cases, like when the brain stops working and the mind does not stop working, that association seems to come apart. Let me give you one more example of this. In people who have advanced dementia, like Alzheimer's disease, and they have not been able to communicate or recognize family for years. They sometimes in the last hours or days, sometimes before they die, become completely lucid again and can recognize family, carry on coherent conversations, and then they pass away. And there is no explanation in terms of medical science for how these people can regain consciousness when their brains have an irreversible brain disease. And yet it's well-documented. Uh, there are some 80 cases that have been published in the medical literature, and there's active research going on at NIH right now uh, to study this This called paradoxical uh, lucidity or terminal lucidity.
0: Yes, that's a very, very interesting phenomenon. I think it's, it's a very strong um, evidence that the mind does exist beyond the brain. Um, I brought this up with a few people, a couple of, of more skeptical people like Dr. Gerald Verley and, um, and someone else. And the response that dr burley gave was that it's this could be somehow related to maybe ph changes in the brain um ph levels in the brain um and uh, the other person came up with a reasonable idea that seemed reasonable at the time that um some of these could be caused by some kind of growth or or malformation in the brain and as the brain begins to de- degenerate the um the connections begin to de- degenerate with alzheimer's and various things that um in fact the the tumor degenerates as well, or that, that begins to de- degenerate as well. And when it gets to a certain level of degeneration, that normal brain function is, is returned because that tumor is no longer taking effect. What do you think about that kind of thing?
1: But it's very clear that in Alzheimer's disease, it's an irreversible process in most dimensions. That's true. And the brain does not regenerate itself. There are no shru- tumors to be shrunken. It's just a matter of the brain cells themselves mm-hmm. degenerating and Becoming less functional. So there is no medical way that they can be regenerated. We should also say that this terminal lucidity is observed in a wide variety of brain diseases. It is seen in tumors, it's also seen in uh, abscesses, in infections of the brain, in dementia, in a wide variety of of irreversible brain diseases.
0: Yes. And certainly, um, as I said before, in in those circumstances, you know, among Taken alongside other evidences such as near-death experiences, veridical out-of-body perceptions, things like that, I think that um, terminal or, or now paradoxical lucidity is, is perhaps one of the stronger lines of evidence that the brain is not created in consciousness. It is. and um, Or at least that it's not dependent, that consciousness isn't dependent on the, on the physical brain, if you know what I mean. Right.
1: It's not completely dependent on the physical brain. Yeah. What it is, I have no idea.
0: No, of of course not, because it's it's beyond our right. ability to right. really yeah to really understand at the moment. Definitely. But that that as we say you know, hopefully we'll be able to develop science to be able to yes. encompass that eventually. Um, so I mean, w- moving on to a slightly different area now with near death experiences, they always seem to be the experience that people have near death seems to be very closely related to kind of their cultural background and what they'd what they'd expect to see if you know what I mean uh, so uh, Christians when they have near death experiences for instance will see the being of light and they'll say I saw I saw Jesus or a hindu would say I saw uh, I'm showing my ignorance of the religions uh, shiva and you, you know what I uh, you know what I mean atheists will, will not see a deity as such but they do often see uh, deceased relatives and, and and things like that what what do you how do you interpret that kind of thing
1: Well, again, most people who have near-death experiences say that they are ineffable. There's no words to describe them. So they say, I'll have to use a convenient metaphor that you understand to tell you what happened. And many people all over the world will describe a warm, loving being of light. And If you're raised in a Christian family, you may say that was Christ or that was God because that's what you are taught to call it. But they often say, Um, I don't mean the type of God that that I was raised with. This is just, I don't know what else to call it. Whereas people who don't have that background will not use that word for it. And I actually know people who were not Christians who say it looked like Jesus to me because they are familiar with the cultural metaphors of Jesus. But they say, no, I don't believe in that, but that's what it looked like to me. Let me give you an example that's not related to this being, Um, many people report going through a tunnel to get from this realm to the other world. And in Western cultures where there are a lot of tunnels, that's a frequently used metaphor. But in countries where there are not a lot of structures like tunnels, they use other words like a cave or a well or the throat of a long flower. Um, One person that I interviewed who was a truck driver said that he felt he was sucked into a long tailpipe So you use whatever cultural metaphors come to you most readily to describe what's happening to you. And that's what I think is behind the cross-cultural differences in near-death experiences. The basic phenomena are the same, but the way they describe it comes from their cultural metaphors.
0: Hmm. And and there have been several um, attempted explanations from a material point of view as as to, for example, the tunnel, um, I believe proposed commonly by Susan Blackmore. Um, what, what kind of explanations are offered for that kind of thing? And do they do they really work? Uh, well, people have proposed explanations
1: for the tunnel in terms of uh, progressive deterioration of the, of the retina, where the light is preserved mostly in the center and lost on the outside. Actually, that's got nothing to do with what the tunnel is that see, people see in a near-death experience. They don't see a darkening of the periphery and a preservation of the center. They see a tunnel with all the structure of the tunnel that they expect and they see outside the tunnel as well. So it's not at all like tunnel vision. In terms of seeing deceased loved ones, the most common uh, materialist explanation for this is that it's a combination of expectation of what you think will happen at death and wishful thinking you want to be reunited with people. And that may in fact be the explanation for some apparent visions of deceased loved ones. But there are many cases that have been well corroborated of people seeing someone who they thought was still alive, who they had no reason to think might have died, and they report seeing these people, and then later on people find out that person had just died a few hours or a few days before the near-death experience.
0: For those that say such cases are um, merely anecdotal and of no evidential value, what what would you say to them? is, is the relevance and the importance of, of the aspect of corroboration um, for these experiences.
1: Corroboration is important because we're all vulnerable to believing what we want to believe. So we all have biases. There's no getting around that. Um, every spiritual-minded person has them. Every materialistic-minded person has them. And the way to correct around that, that for that bias is to look for corroboration particularly from people who don't share your particular biases. Jan Holden, a professor at the University of North Texas, uh, studied over 100 cases of claimed out-of-body perceptions, and she found that more than 90% had been uh, um, corroborated by by, uh, external sources to be completely accurate. Um, so it's not we're not just talking about a rare case of an accurate perception we're talking about the vast majority of these perceptions being corroborated as accurate
0: and I think as you say it's very important to acknowledge that we do certainly all have biases you can be the most scientific person in the world scientifically minded but biases are incredibly powerful things and we all do we all do have them
1: I think our biases are very very powerful and especially if they're tied into your basic worldview of what you think the world is made of and it's it's very threatening to think that you might be mistaken. I know because I started out that way. I started out as a hardcore materialist and I was very shaken, let me tell you, by by confronting near-death experiences. But being a scientist and particularly being a skeptical scientist, I couldn't pretend it didn't happen. I couldn't just choose which things I want to believe and which things I don't want to believe. The data are there, whether you want them to be there or not. As a scientist, my obligation was to study it
0: Yes, and this kind of data is it seems to be worldwide. I mean, it's mainly kind of focused in the West for us, but I, I believe it's been done kind of all over the world as well.
1: I think most of the research has been done in Western societies. If you look, if you actually do studies of Eastern societies, you see the same proportion of cases. This has been done in China and in Japan and in India, for example, in Tibet. Um, for a while, we thought there were no Muslim cases. And then in the last decade or so, There have been a couple of studies done in Iran uh, and elsewhere that have shown that there are uh, cases among Muslim uh, people who have close brushes with death. We also have reports from ancient Greece and Rome. We have reports from um, cultures in the Pacific Islands, in Native American cultures that were collected by um, French fur trappers back in the 1600s, 1700s, that are all very much like the near-death experiences we hear from Westerners today.
0: Yes. So okay, so moving on to the idea of um, experiments that have been done to try and verify out of body perception. Um, for instance, the experiments by Sampania, um, and and people often refer to that because they seem to not have yielded any any results, and people use that to say, well, the it shows it doesn't happen.
1: Right, you're talking about studies where people intentionally plant hidden targets in a room where they're likely to have a near death experience. Um, And in Sam's particular case, he was able to mount shelves high up in the corner of the room above eye level where he planted targets. And then when people had a cardiac arrest in that room, he would ask them if they could identify that that target, if they saw anything unusual and so forth. And we had high hopes that that might show something. In fact, it did not. Um, He did not find um, any cases. We found very few cases that had a near-death experience at all who claimed to leave their bodies and none that claimed to have seen the target. Now, if they had claimed to see it and described it incorrectly, I would take that as evidence against the accuracy of the near-death experience, but he didn't find that. He found none of them described seeing a target at all. I was disappointed in that, but it wasn't persuasive. When I said, described that study to near-death experiencers, they just laugh at it. They say, "Imagine." being out of your body for the first time in a near-death situation, are you going to go looking around the room for some target you didn't know was there and try to remember it for when the researchers talk to you later on? It will be comparable to you claiming that you had taken an airline, airline trip, and I doubt that you did. So I ask you, if you really took that trip, tell me, what was the name of the TSA agent who checked you in? He had it on his chest right there on a name tag, if you can't tell me, then obviously you didn't go.
0: Yes, I think I think that's a good example, or a good, a good um, analogy. So, um, I suppose to to ask the big question for, for my kind of research, um, from your own research, what, what do you think what you've studied implies about what happens to, to us as individuals after physical death?
1: I don't know that I can give you a good answer to that. I think the most reasonable hypothesis is that death of the body is not the end of our consciousness. I'm not 100% convinced of that. As a scientist, I'm still debating, I'm still questioning, and there may be new evidence coming up tomorrow that will make me think otherwise. But as of now, all the data we have suggests to me that consciousness continues after death of the body. Furthermore, The evidence suggests strongly that it doesn't just survive for a few minutes after the death of the body and then fade away, but it persists for long periods of time. Does it persist forever? I have no idea. I don't know what form it takes. Uh, I think, you know, most people tell me that they can't describe what happened in the other realm, and I take that seriously. So I'm prepared to be totally surprised if I find myself after death in some other realm, I'm sure it'll be nothing like anything I can imagine now.
0: Mm. And I like the way Jan Holden puts it when she says um, that, from a scientific point of view, near-death experiences can't show us what happens permanently after permanent death. It can show us uh, what happens in the moments when we, when the brain doesn't seem to be functioning uh, and we return to it to, to tell. So it could certainly be that consciousness continues for a short time after death before it somehow dissipates and gets lost. Well, I mean,
1: for example, um, people can emit body odors that may still hang around after the person dies for a few minutes. So it's possible that some things that came from your body may persist when the body dies. And it's, I guess, supposedly that uh, conceivable that consciousness could be coming from the brain and persist for a brief period of time, like an echo, after the brain
0: dies. Yes, yes, just temporarily so.
1: But the evidence suggests that people in near-death experiences can sometimes encounter beings who have been dead for quite a while. So it's more than just a matter of hanging around for a few minutes before it fades out.
0: Yes, and and especially if, if the deceased person gives them verified information that only the dead person and the near-death experience are knew, that shows that that must be a personality. Right. That's from, right. From the deceased person, that's obviously lasted um, for possibly many years. Depends how long they they were they'd have been dead for, I suppose. Um, so overall, from, from your research, what do you find is the most compelling form of evidence that, um, that consciousness can survive bodily, bodily death, in your opinion? I think there are a number of
1: things about the near-death experience that strongly suggest that. And One is simply the reports of enhanced consciousness when the brain has stopped functioning, as far as we can tell. Another line of evidence is the perceptions that are accurate and corroborated from apparently out-of-body perspective. And there's no way the brain can do that. People all sometimes see things that are at a distance from the body in another room, in another city, and they describe them accurately. And I think that apparent encounters with people who are dead but were not known to have been dead are also strong evidence that there's something going on with consciousness that doesn't remain confined to the brain and body.
0: Mm. We recently um, lost both of our two little dogs. Have you heard any cases of people that have seen deceased pets in their in their near-death experiences? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Have there been any cases of near-death experiences where people have seen um, deceased pets or deceased animals?
1: Um, there are not many, but there are some in which people do... Uh, Meet uh, deceased pets. Um, interestingly, we hear this often from children who have near-death experience. Um, I don't know why this is. I don't know why we don't hear more of them, um, but it does suggest that humans aren't the only ones who have some consciousness that survives.
0: Mm. Well, I'm glad to hear that I might be able to see my little dogs after <laughs> after I go. Um, so, moving on to um, to the book that you published, that's behind you. After yes. Um, you, you've written, of course, over you know, hundreds of, of scientific papers. So what, what made you decide to finally um, put, a, a, put it into book form for the public?
1: I've been thinking about writing this book uh, for 50 years, um, but it wasn't until um, recently that I thought we had enough of a handle on the experience, enough scientific understanding of the experience to be able to say something coherently about it. So I started to write a book basically with everything I had learned about near-death experiences. And I was quickly persuaded by people who were helping me that it can't just be a textbook of near-death experiences. It has to be more personal than that. So I included my journey of going from a hardcore materialist to gradually becoming more and more open to the non-materialistic aspects of our lives through exposure to near-death experiences. And I show in the book how it was a struggle for me and how each piece of evidence played a role and what role it played in trying to expand my understanding. And as I said, I still don't feel confident that I have all the answers, but that's part of what science is. You never quite reach the truth in science. You just get new hypotheses that are better than the previous ones.